Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so, then you, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us through time of trial and rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Motivation. What motivates you? What drives you? Just recently, I found myself having a conversation with one of our staff members here, one of our team members, about the reality that many of us are facing when it comes to this upcoming school year. And regardless of how you might be moving forward, be it a hybrid approach, school at home, in the classroom perhaps, or completely online, regardless of how you might move into this year, the reality is that this year will look and feel much differently than many of us are used to. And I found myself wondering aloud during this conversation, how do you teach a child to impose a schedule upon him or herself? How do you motivate a child, in other words, to impose this schedule or to impose expectations upon themselves when these things have been previously imposed upon them? How do you help a child to create a schedule that will serve them well and serve the rest of the household well? Motivation. Now, 
I don't know the answers to those questions, so if you have figured that out, please share it with the rest of us. But there's another way to look about motivation as well, a way that really gets to the heart of Jesus' teachings here in Matthew chapter 6, and that has to do with motives. The essence of Jesus' teachings here in Matthew chapter 6 gets to the heart of what Jesus cares about most, namely our hearts. What is behind our thoughts and behaviors and actions? What are our motivations? And in this ongoing season of disruption that we are in, like it or not, the Sermon on the Mount is a timely and beneficial piece of biblical wisdom coming directly from Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Prince of Peace. So if we wanted to frame this season of disruption positively, I believe that we have been given perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to dive deeply into our motivations, our motivations as disciples, and our motivations as the church. Why do we think and do and say and believe and organize as we do? What motivates us when it comes to loving and serving and worshiping God? Are we motivated by worldly esteem and worldly metrics? Are we motivated by the desire to be likable, by the desire to be popular, by the desire to be conflict-averse or avoidant? Or are we motivated primarily by the simple desire to please and to glorify God and to live into kingdom values here on earth? What motivates us as Christians? In the opening week of this current sermon series, Pastor Rob shared that he believed the Sermon on the Mount, found in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and I do hope that you're spending some time in uh, those chapters as we move through this series. They are rich, deep, wise, timeless passages. But Pastor Rob had said that he believed that the Sermon on the Mount was perhaps the greatest statement on ethics ever drawn up. I believe that to be true, and I would even take it one step further. In addition to, to being theological gold in terms of our foundational theology and beliefs as Christians and as disciples, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount also contains our organizing, guiding principles. The Sermon on the Mount contains how we should organize our thoughts and our lives and our behaviors, both as individuals and in the life of the church. Now, you will often hear me say a phrase like that, either both as individuals and collectively as the body of Christ, or in your own life and in the life of the church. I say those things and I put those things together very often because I never want to forget something. 
that is profound and true and timeless. And that is that God created and Jesus destined us to do life together. And that we cannot escape one another. We're not meant to, we're not designed to, and in fact, we cannot do it. Even if we try our hardest, we are here existing together. And I think that in the West, this is especially important because we often tend to elevate our individual faith or our individual expression over the communal nature and the communal calling that Christ has given us as his bride, as his body, as his people here on earth. And I believe that the once in this lifetime opportunity we perhaps have been given during this season of disruption is to explore our motivations as Christians, to explore what lies behind why we do the things that we do, and to dig deep into our organizational guiding principles. I believe the Sermon on the Mount provides this for us. If you have been part of any organization ever at all in your life, you are likely familiar with vision, mission, and values statements. Vision statements tell us where we're going. Mission statements tell us what we are about, what are we here for. And value statements contain the guiding principles that motivate us. Now, in the year 2020, when everything needs to be said and communicated in fewer characters and fewer words, when attention spans are small and shrinking, and when trust is in short supply overall, meaning most people don't know who or what to trust when it comes to people and certainly when it comes to institutions. When these things are true about the reality that we find ourselves in, we have been given the opportunity to condense our words, to condense our messaging, and in the place of long statements that often fail to line up with our organizational processes and definitely fail to keep pace with the rate of change in the world that we live in, we can be better served today by condensing that all into a shorter statement that allows us to know and to name our purpose. What is our purpose? Why are we here? And allows us to keep our guiding values at the forefront. Purpose and values, they matter in the world that we live in, perhaps more than anything else. And this is true for people, and it's true for organizations, and it's true for the church as well. Social scientists can tell us that the majority of people in today's workforce are motivated less by a sense of security, which was true um, just a few decades ago, the majority of people in today's workforce are motivated less by a sense of security and motivated most by a sense of purpose, and specifically a purpose that achieves something for the betterment of the world. And if this is true for the workforce, as social scientists will tell us, 
then it's true for the church as well. Why? Well, it's quite simple if you think about it. Purpose gives us meaning. And whether or not we are able to articulate that, it is something that we all desire deeply. We want to know that our lives matter and that we have something to contribute to the world. And values are what connect our individual meaning to the broader meaning and the betterment of the world. They're the connectors. Now, I can think of no organization then better equipped, that should be better equipped, I should say, than the church to rally around our core purpose. When we talk about simplifying and condensing, Jesus was the master at this. He simplified and condensed all of the laws, our entire purpose, into a really succinct statement, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves our purpose. And we're also called to rally around our key kingdom values, which are found in Jesus's teaching. We exist on purpose and for purpose to value the things that matter most to God, purpose and values. And in a world that devalues the things that matter most to God, life and selfless, authentic love and right relationship and sacrificial living in a world that devalues what matters most to God, I believe that we, church, are called to up our values game. This might seem counterintuitive when you look around at the world but I believe that it is true. Purpose and values can drive us forward. And in this particular section in Matthew chapter 6, we learn to value authentic motives. We talked a few minutes ago about motivation and motives. What is underneath? What drives our thoughts and our behaviors and our actions and our organization? And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is saying that authentic motives matter to him. And he's specifically talking in this section about prayer and fasting. Regarding prayer, Jesus warns us not to be like the hypocrites. Now, that word might sting, but in actuality, the word doesn't have any value basis to it. The literal translation of hypocrites literally meant stage actors. Jesus is saying, don't pray for show. Don't do things for show. Rather, pray like this. And then he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that has been embedded in personal and communal acts of uh, discipleship and worship since he instituted them. This prayer goes back to our Lord and Savior. He teaches us how to pray like this. Our Father, he says. He starts off the prayer with a relationally intimate term. He starts off the prayer by naming this parental love and connection. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Holy is your name. Set apart is your name. Our Father, we're connected. But you, Lord, are holy. Your kingdom come, we pray. The organization that we are seeking to be a part of is God's kingdom here on earth. Your kingdom come, we pray. Your will, God, your will be done. Our purpose is to value God's will above our own. And we're praying this, Lord, your will be done on earth, not in some faraway place, not after we die, but your will be done, Lord, on earth, right here and right now, as it is in heaven, where your guiding values are already there, where things are already purposed according to your will. And then we go into a prayer of petition. We say, give us. Notice the communal language. We don't pray, give me, give mine. Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day, today, our daily bread. Again, we see the communal language. We are praying that Jesus give us all what we need to survive. Give us our sustenance. Give us the bread of life. Help us with our basic material needs. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, we pray. Again, we see this communal language. Forgive us. This prayer acknowledges that we all stand in need of God's forgiveness. In fact, it assumes it. It doesn't assume that anyone has arrived or that anyone is less in need of God's forgiveness than anyone else. Forgive us our debts, it says, as we forgive our debtors. A reminder that granting forgiveness to others is an expression, an extension of our love for God. Do not bring us into the time of trial, but instead rescue us from the evil one. This part of the prayer recognizes the current and future reality that we will all be tempted, that there are forces at work seeking to oppose God's kingdom, seeking to oppose the things that God values, life and authentic love, sacrificial love and right relationship. Rescue us, Lord, from the evil one. God's kingdom is here at hand. Our purpose is to seek it, to find it, and to embody its values. And by embodying these kingdom values, we will be living into our purpose. Prayer helps us with this. Prayer, the discipline of continually naming God in relationally intimate terms, by reminding ourselves that God is our loving Father, our Abba, Daddy. That God is also holy, hallowed be thy name. That yes, God is a parent, but God is also holy other. God is divine and, and is our creator. And we pray this regularly, remembering and are, and are hopefully all inspired by the reality 
of God's love and God's perfect nature. And then we put our communal petitions before God. We acknowledge our need for God and our need for one another. We acknowledge that as God forgives us, we are called to extend that forgiveness to everyone else. And through praying this way regularly, through embedding this simple but deep prayer practice into our life, this can, in essence, help us to keep our motivations in check, to keep our motives in check, and help to keep us focused on God and God's will and God's glory above seeking our own will and our own glory. Now, this passage also implores us to explore the motivations behind fasting. When we hear fasting, we might immediately think about giving up food or drink. However, in this continued season of disruption, I wonder if we could all be thinking about fasting a little bit differently. In many ways right now, we are fasting from our weekly gathering here in this shared space. We are fasting from our practice of communion where we share one loaf and one cup here in this space. We are fasting from many of the routines and the rituals that we have come to understand and identify as or with church. And I just can't help but wonder, especially as we are moving through the Sermon on the Mount, during this disruptive season, I just can't help but wonder how things might shift if we were to embrace a voluntary fast rather than the involuntary fast being forced on us. What I mean is that I wonder how our own motivations to return to the old ways, be it the old ways with church, the old ways with sports, the old ways with school or communion or any number of things. I wonder how our own motivations to return to the old could possibly be getting in the way of discerning God's will and God's way for what comes now and what comes next. And I wonder what if, during this season of fasting, we earnestly sought to be motivated by nothing more and nothing less than to glorify God? What if we used this time of fasting to ask hard questions about our purpose as disciples and our purpose as God's church? And what if, instead of being indistinguishable from most of the world around us, we decided to begin living radically into the kingdom values given to us by Jesus and taught to us during his most famous sermon? I don't think the Sermon on the Mount are just nice words to think about. I believe they are our organizational guiding principles. I believe we are called to embody them, to embrace them, to organize around them, and to live fully into 
the word of God contained in the word of God here. What if when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we ask God to boldly lead us in that direction. I imagine God is asking us all today, what is your motivation as a disciple, as a member of the church? What is your purpose? Do you know it? Can you name it? Have you claimed it? And what do you, what do we value as disciples and as the bride of Christ called to be God's set-apart vehicle in this world? What motivates you? What is your purpose? What do you value? Please join me in prayer. Holy and loving God, God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for creating us. God, we thank you for redeeming us. And we thank you for sustaining us. God, we know that you have gone before us. In this season of disruption, you have gone before us, Lord, in everything. Nothing that is happening right now, Lord, is a surprise to you. I pray, God, for all of us, as we seek your will, as we seek to follow you, as we seek to be disciples and a church that glorifies you, Lord, above all else. I pray that you protect us, that you protect us from the evil one, that you protect us from all divisions, that you protect us from all false teachings, that you unite us, Lord, in spirit and in truth, that you unite us, Lord, in the law of love, the law that you summed up, where you taught us that the best way that we can love God is to love those around us. So please be with us, be with our families, watch over us, protect us, and remind us, Lord, as often as we need reminding that we are your beloved children created on purpose to value what matters most to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.